Welcome to episode 33, where I am kicking off 2023 with Kelly O'Hagan. Kelly is one of New Zealand's best high jumpers, having recently competed at the Commonwealth Games in 2022. Kelly's journey with eating and nutrition has not been an easy path, and she openly talks about this in our conversation. I really enjoyed hearing her personal journey, as well as learning what it is like to be a high jumper in the typical training Welcome to the Nourish Your Potential podcast. My name is Koshla Holdaway and I'm a registered and accredited sports dietitian based in beautiful New Zealand. I am so glad you have joined me on this podcast where we will discuss science, sports nutrition, running and physiology alongside interviews with athletes, experts and other health professionals. Whether you're listening to this podcast during your commute, your training session or whilst cooking up a storm in the kitchen, you can be reassured information is discussed in a thought-provoking, evidence-based and easy-to-understand manner so that you have more tools in your nutrition toolbox to be your best self. So I'm joined by Kelly O'Hagan this afternoon. So great of you to come on the podcast. How's your crazy lead up to Christmas going? Hi, it's awesome to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, It's been pretty hectic, just a lot of training and work and appointments and just life admin coming up and, you know, just catching up with everyone before everyone goes away for for a few weeks and stuff. So yeah, it's been pretty hectic time and I'm looking forward to some downtime. Is this time of the year generally a tough time for training for you? Or we, um, it- so we no, we're coming into the peak of our, our season really. So um, it, a lot of people have actually started competing. I do have a competition next week, just a small one. Um, so it's kind of a, it is a bit of a tough time, like managing the training load because you obviously can't we can't stop stop training, especially when I start um, competing in the, in the new year and in January. So um, it's just about adapting for what I do have available. So this year I'm actually with my family in the remote um, east coast of the Wairarapa um, and it's the first time that we'll be out there for Christmas. So accessing um, like gyms and um, I won't have access to a high jump unless I go into Wellington, which is two and a half hours away. So I'll do that once. And um, the rest of the time, like I'm very fortunate that my old work have given me access to a gym over there um, and uh, just a uh, taking um, time each day to go to a random field that's stable because the ones that everything that's close by to me is all rocky or there's not even it's just a gravel road so I can't do any of my proper training there so it just takes a little bit of adapting but they're things that we're used to um, when you're on the road and and stuff you've just got to do what you can. Mm, yeah you'd have to be very adaptable um, and I guess it's always a balance isn't it because of course you need to keep training but you also mm. really need to have that time with your family and Christmas and New Year and not just yeah. completely, you know, just commit to training and not have any of that special time. Yeah, definitely. And normally I don't actually take that long away. Normally I just go for maybe five days max, but this time I'm actually going for about eight days just to completely have a little bit of a break, um, mm. obviously besides training, but just, yeah. Um, de-stress and spend time with the family because I didn't actually get the chance to do that this year after um, coming back from overseas. I just had only really small periods of time um, off. So, yeah, it will be good. And in terms of, like, your off-season with sport, would you have had a bit of a break after Commonwealth? Is that when you'd have your main break? Yeah, so um, I had a month off after Commonwealth Games, a month off from training. However, I actually stayed on and um, did two weeks of travel with my family and friends, um, which I've learned a lot from. And it was great, but I'm definitely not doing that next year in the lead up to the Olympics. Um, And then when I came back, I just um, started catching up on some work that I missed. So I kind of made a vital mistake of not actually scheduling any time off. Um, Even though I wasn't training, I didn't take, I took two nights away in Hamner and that was the the only like break I guess that I had from everything so I um, definitely learned from that which is why I'm really excited for the 
um, this, you know, Christmas, New Year period so I can actually um, stop. <laughs> yes, take a breath, yeah. And yeah. high jump, it's such a cool sport. I mean, I'm not biased, but it's certainly one of my favourites and it's <laughs> quite cool to watch too, you know, it's a, just generally an awesome sport. So where did your interest start? Like, were you into athletics as a young child? Mm. So, um, yeah, it is a very cool sport. I'm obviously definitely biased, <laughs> but I love it a lot. Um, I think there's something pretty cool there. And pole vault is amazing too. Yes. Like, I don't know how they, how they do it. Um, I started athletics when I was nine. So I just went down to the local athletics club. Um, I'm from the Kapiti Coast. So it was Parapara Umu um, Athletics Club. And um, I just fell in love with it. My mum took me and my brothers along. My brothers really didn't like it. They, I don't know if they ever went back or maybe they got dragged along a few times, but I loved it. I loved running. Um, and you couldn't actually high jump at nine. You can only start when you're 10 years old. Um, and so I just, I think I just fell in love with the sport and, and moving my body. I was always an active child. I kind of did all sports under the sun. Um, and so just being out there in the summer sun, like it was just, yeah, it was really wonderful. And then when I turned 10, um, I just, had a natural ability for high jump and I've been jumping. So I'm 28 at the moment. I've been jumping now for 18 years um, and I just still love it so much. And so, yeah, it's been a huge progression, but just a constant thing has been the enjoyment of the sport. Mm. Did you juggle any other sports in the mix or once you were 10 and you loved high jumping, was that it? Was it just high jump after that? No. So I, um, it was kind of my special, like, I guess my, like, main event when I was that age onwards. But I um, did rep touch netball. I did tennis. I played rep badminton um, <laughs> around the same time. I think I was doing surf lifesaving as well, and I had to choose one or the other. Um, and I ended up choosing athletics. And so I had to make quite a lot of sacrifices when I started to want to do athletics more in terms of other sports. But I still, like, consistently played um, so many other things. I danced until I was 15 as well. I really don't know how I had the time to do anything. Um, and, you know, bless my mum, just taking me everywhere that I needed to go. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I really enjoyed doing other things. Um, but when I was probably, um, maybe when I was 14, that I started to really seriously specialise in um, athletics but maybe 17-ish, 18, when that was the only sport that I was doing at, at that time. So I kind of dropped everything else by that, those ages. So And just pursued that, yeah. And yep. what's your journey been like as a female athlete, especially getting in the more competitive end? Um, it's been really interesting. It's, I mean, being an athlete is really challenging, like irrespective of um of gender however obviously like as female athletes we have a few more challenges and different challenges thrown at us um and I think being in a male dominated environment um in terms of your support staff it's it's it has changed for me over the last couple of years I have a lot more female support um people on my network um has been interesting and really challenging you know like just stuff around how um, you know, like your cycle, menstrual cycle and periods and, and um, you know, even now at my training facility that I do my dominant um, track and training and jumping, I don't have access to a toilet. You know, just th just little things like that. That um, And it's not, it's not um, because of like we do, we don't train at the main track. We train at a different facility that was there like after the earthquake. I'm in Otuatahi in Christchurch. So um, slightly different Um and just, yeah, things like that are very unique and make things just a little bit harder sometimes, especially obviously at certain times of the month and just a little bit of anxiety around stuff like that. But um, I think as a, as a whole, like there's, you know, so many positives and I've grown so much as, as a, um, I start, I think, as a young woman. Um, but when I was younger, I think there wasn't a lot of support around necessarily to help manage some of the emotions and the, the pressures and stuff that, um, that you go through as a young female and it make in you know certain environments make it really hard to talk about things um, so yeah so I'm, I'm in a really fortunate position now that I can have open communication with those around me um, but it takes a lot um, 
to get to that stage. And I know there's a lot of people that really struggle being, you know, around a lot of ma- um, men um, with certain issues. So, mm. yeah. And is out of interest, like your coach, has your coach remained the same over the years or? No. So I moved to um, Christchurch in 2019. Um, so I was living in Wellington before that. And so I've had three three main coaches. I've had a couple of other coaches and, and um, like thrown in the mix there, but I've had a stable coach for the last almost four years now. Um, and so he, yeah, so he's, and, we, and we've evolved a lot like together as um, in our training and stuff. Like we do a lot of our training around my menstrual cycle now and um, which is really awesome. Um and then before that, I had a, a long-term coach as well. So I've been really fortunate um, with the people that I've had around me. Mm. Um, but, yeah, so, yeah, definitely it's been the same coach now. So mostly I've had two coaches since I was uh, 19, I think. Mm. And, yeah. like, with specifics, what main things do you alter with your training around your menstrual cycle? Um, training load would be like the biggest the biggest thing. So for me, I have on the first day of my cycle, I take it off mm-hmm. um, because I often get cramps and, um, yeah, just don't feel 100% and then I feel great, you know, from day two onwards. Um, and at the end of my cycle, uh, I also have what's called like choice days. Mm-hmm. And so I turn up to whatever session we're doing. Um, so it's usually for three to four days. I turn up to whatever session time we normally do and I get to choose what I do that day so I can ask for guidance um and say hey like this is kind of how I'm feeling these are the things that I'm wanting to do um like similar things and then my coach might be like oh well do this um or and then I'll just take what I want from that some days it's just you know if we're in the gym I'll just choose which exercises I want to do I end up doing like the same like a very similar load if not more than what I was doing but just having the freedom to choose myself is quite, I guess, empowering over that time when you, you know, you might look at something and be like, oh, I have to do that. Um, and it's about reframing that for me so that it's not a barrier, me doing it. Um, and, yeah, I'm working with, with what I'm wanting and what my body's feeling at that time. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I've had a lot, of, um, a lot of experience around, you know, the types of training that I know will be beneficial for me. So I just go with the flow of what I'm feeling on those days. And then for the, um, you know, the first two weeks, essentially, we can push my body a little bit harder. Um, and so we do uh, some, like, we just increase the load a little bit over those times, maybe adding in a couple of extra sessions because I can recover better. Um, yeah, those are probably the two key things that we do. And in a typical week at the moment, like, obviously quite hard training, what does it look like as a high jumper? Like, obviously a lot of jumping, jumping practice, but what else in terms of, like, strength training and other types of... Mm, so I don't actually do as much jumping as you probably think. I usually only jump twice a week. Um, high jumping it has quite a lot of force that goes through your body, so you can't actually do too much of it. I have been doing this week and last week three sessions, three high jump sessions, but we manage the load... Um, based on so we do some shorter run-ups for some well like one session and then some longer ones and then manipulate how many reps um how many reps of things we do so there's that yeah two to three times a week at the most generally two um i do uh weights so i'm in the gym two to three times a week again this is dependent on the phase of my cycle that i'm in um and also just the overall um phase of my training whether i'm in a heavy centric block or um leading into competition obviously we're doing less and um less load um what else do I do so running I do a lot of running like a lot of running um but more sprinting based stuff um heaps of drills to kind of mimic the movement that we're getting in um so we so I guess a typical week for me would be a Monday a lifting session um Tuesday I'll be at the track in the morning and I'll either do a jump and some maybe like sled work or um, so toes and some um, additional little plyometric stuff. In the afternoon, I might do a um, go back to the uh, to the track and do a, a circuit um, with med ball uh, medicine balls um, and maybe a little bit of running, like sprinting. And then Wednesday, gym session again, uh, 
Thursday might be a big drill session um, and some some plyometrics. Friday, gym or gymnastics. We do a bit of gymnastics as well, which is just for fun, um, really, but also obviously keeps your body moving. Um, Saturday is quite a big track session, so we can be there for up to three hours, um, and that's usually jumping or, um, depending on the time of year, might be a combination of everything else we've done throughout the week and then some uh, a recovery session or beach session on a Sunday, mm. usually, or a steer session. So it varies a lot, um, and which is fun. It makes it interesting, and that's one thing that I really enjoy about um athletics training is that it has a lot of variety and there's a lot of things that you can do Mm -hmm. and with the specific like jump sessions you do but how many jumps would you actually do in a session like is it like five jumps or like yeah no that's a really good question I mean most people yeah would have absolutely no no idea because they're such a, a niche sport I guess um so the focus is definitely technical. So we often start with a generic warm-up, which can take, you know, 20 to 30 minutes. Um, it's kind of often a very similar warm-up that will repeat every time we're on the track. Um, I'll do some drills and then, um, so they're all high jump specific drills, and then go into the, te- the technical session of actually jumping. And so it sometimes could be um, anything from, in peak season, we might only do, you know, four jumps. Right. And that's like leading into, so that's leading into nationals, really. Like at, at a peak competition or Commonwealth Games, you might only do in the session, the last session that you do, you might only do, yeah, four, four run-up jumps or something because you don't want to tire your body out and your legs out. Um, and then most of the other times throughout the year, you're probably doing up to 15 to 20 jumps in a session. Yeah. I think 15 is probably... Um, 15's probably around like the average that we would do and are you constantly jumping at like pretty much your max height when you're doing them or some people do so it depends on the type of jumper that you are I personally don't I don't seem to train as high or as well oh, I can train well but I find for me a lot more benefit in having it a little bit lower and then I can focus on the technical aspects because when the, as soon as you increase the height, for me, you your body starts think can it can think more. Oh, I need to get over this rather than just following your processes that will get you over. Mm. Um, whereas some people they need that pressure to get into the right position. So it just depends on the type of jumper. Um, I yeah, I've never jumped higher than I think around 182 in a training session and my pubes 189. Oh my gosh. Um, so high. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I just really, like, I, I do a lot of um, now, I do a lot of visualisation stuff and also, like, in my in my high jump specific drills at the beginning of a session, I'll often put the bar at a really high height. So visually, it's not scary for me um, getting over something that that's that, that's that high. Um, but I definitely do need, oh, I don't necessarily need, but I do find it a lot easier to um for me to be slightly lower and that just seems to work so Mm. and I mean all sport is is very mental but high jump in particular like getting yourself into the right headspace as you're like about to do your run up and jump like it it must take a lot and it's so interesting when you watch high jump because all the athletes have their own little rituals and things they do like beforehand muttering things to themselves um, what do you find helpful and what's your sort of ritual before you jump? Um, so it's changed a lot in the last year. I never, you, you get, like you said, you get a lot of people that mutter to themselves. I always was like, oh, I could never be that. Like <laughs> I, in my head, I never thought that I'd be someone that would talk to myself. <laughs> and then this year, I just constantly talk to myself um, beforehand. So um, a huge thing for me throughout the year has been around affirmations and just like reinforcement. So I'll either be... Before I jump, I'll be standing there and often visualize what I'm doing. Um, so you might you might see me using my hands or, you know, putting my um, body into a certain certain position uh, with my eyes shut. And then often when I'm standing there, I will be either yeah hyping myself up by aff- like affirmations. Um, when I was at the games, I think there was a, a clip of me, and you can like read what I'm saying. Um, so after that, actually, for the, for the for the final, I made sure I muttered it a bit more to myself because <laughs> I was like, that's, that's for me to deal with at the time. Um, 
around, you know, like I'm strong, I'm capable, like I'm powerful, like you've got this, I'm like just talking to myself um, or talking about the specific, uh, sorry, specific cues that I are wanting, uh, am wanting to um, work through on that particular jump. So, yeah, so I do that and then I do this little, like, I roll, like, um, I kind of step into my, my run-up quite a bit, like I run in a little bit. Um, everyone's so different. It's it's quite interesting and entertaining to watch, um, I think, from an outside perspective because you're like, how are they all so different? Yeah, no, it's really interesting to watch. Um, talk us through Commonwealth Games. That must have been an incredible experience for you. Yeah, it was. It was pretty surreal once I got there because, for me, my – uh, my selection to the team wasn't a straightforward process. I only had one standard and uh, most people had two. Um, that was kind of in our selection policy. So there were a few other things that we, hoops that we had to deal with, um, go through and um, deal with and lots of communication with the Olympic Committee. Um, so it just made it, I, my selection was quite late. So we had to, you know, prepare um, as though I was going and I only had the formal selection a couple of weeks before I actually left. Um so getting there was just a really cool moment to be like, wow, I'm here. I've done this. I've been, you know, uh, preparing for years to get to this stage, uh, get to this stage. And um, the envi- like village environment is definitely something very different from anything that um, most people will ever experience. I was fortunate that I had gone to the World University Games twice before, which kind of mimics that sort of situation that you'd be in in the village environment because you've just got so much going on around you. Um you know, they've got all these people from all these different sports from all these different countries. Um, but we were, we're still in a COVID time, or we were especially then, like still in a COVID time. So it kind of um, definitely changed just the village life um, a little bit because you had to still be mindful um, of not contracting COVID because there were people that did get it um, from the New Zealand team. So it was cool and fun and they had like music and stuff and like um, lovely food and everything like that. But um the rest, you know, it's quite, it is quite boring in the lead up to your competition sometimes. That's not a bad thing. Um, you're just resting and watching Netflix and competing or eating. You're pretty much just doing like one of those, one of those three things because you're, you're trying to, you know, obviously not overexert your body. Um, in terms of the actual competition, it was just, yeah, a very crazy like experience I've never competed in front of so many people we had 30,000 people for both uh, the qualifying and the final there and so I made sure a few days before that I went to watch another um, athletic session so that I could sit in the crowd and just like hear and see what it would be like for me to be down there um, rather than just getting there and being very overwhelmed about you know just the the um, overpowering noise and clapping and everything um but it was so fun like me my sports psych and I had mentally prepared myself to be in that position and for all scenarios you know we'd walked through everything I had gone over what would happen if I missed my opening height I'd gone over what happened if I no heighted um you know and just all the negatives as well as the positives that you have to kind of go through so for me I really wanted to enjoy myself and have fun and so I you know, took in the environment. I didn't. I didn't try and block it out. I would. I remember in the qualifying, I just sat there, faced the stand, and just sat there in between one of my jumps. And I was like, "How cool is this? Like, I'm just watching. All these people are here, like watching us." Um, and then obviously, like, I'd I'd let those moments happen and then move on. So um, yeah, it was really fun. I had a lot of fun, and I met some really cool people. Um, I had competed against quite a few of the jumpers before but there were a lot that I hadn't competed against and uh there were challenges with how some of the other competitors um were around me and so you know just things that I hadn't really had to experience or be exposed to before so lots of learnings and just lots of fun what were some of the challenges with other people um so I just had athletes like just stand in front of your run up (laughs) and just wait like stand there and so you'd have to be like, excuse me, like, please move. And d- did it multiple times. It wasn't just like a one-off thing or, um, uh, yeah. So just trying to stand my ground whilst also not, um, you know, being, whilst also being um, true to myself and not, um, and being nice about it. Um, 
yeah, that was something that I don't think I had experienced before because I know that it happens in certain countries and you get competitors who, you know, will use certain tactics to kind of like get into people's head, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, it was the first time that I had been exposed to it firsthand. Um, and I actually had con- like good conversations with the people afterwards, not about that, but just with other things. And I think potentially it was a, you know, they were in their zone and they just didn't really think and they had um, very stern looks on their face when you spoke with them and um, yeah, one of them, when I asked her to please move, she just looked at me and then when she walked off, she just stared at me the whole time. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, like it's my turn to jump. So <laughs> try to psych yeah, out. Just little, yeah, just little things like that. But I just kind of like was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm here for me and I, I'm, I'm not going to get to squat, like, um, you know, get um, a no height um, or a, a scratch on my scorecard because time's run out because they're in the way you know like it's just not that wouldn't be fair so I knew that that would be fine so for those listening what does no height mean oh so um no height um means that so there's there's two ways that you can like so you can either miss a height or which would be a failure of a jump and you can get timed out so you have to um got a certain time depending on usually a minute that you have to complete your jump in Uh, if you know height that means that you do not um, get any of your first three attempts at the opening height of the competition. Right, I see. So you get no no um, score on your uh, no height on your um, scorecard at all, mm-hmm. and so you you just get yeah you wouldn't get a placing. Mm-hmm. And how do they know where to start the bar at? Like for even the qualifying, is there a set height for all the competitions, or does it depend on what the athlete has jumped to it in the qualifying round? Yeah, so it changes for different competitions. So um, for like a world championship or Olympic sort of competition, it would be a very high stand, a very high bar. So it would probably jump or start around 185. Mm. Um, for a competition like ours, it's it was still a really high level competition, but there were some people that um, had lower starting heights. So I think that they stay, uh, they kind of looked at what everyone's personal bests were and made a judgment call based on that. Um, so it wasn't a super high starting height, which was quite beneficial, um, just with nerves and stuff and getting getting in the groove. Um, but, it, yeah, it completely depends on the competition as to what the starting height is. And was Commonwealth where you set your PB? Yeah. Yeah. How yeah. cool. Like, cherry on yeah. top. So yeah, exciting. definitely. I, I had a goal of... Um, I had two goals actually and one was to get in the top six and the other was to be at least attempting my PB height. I think if you're sometimes we're a bit too hard on ourselves and we're like oh we don't get a PB um, but that's not good enough but you know my perception is if I'm attempting a PB height I'm attempting something that I've never got over before so you know every time that you're attempting that you're increasing your chances the next time of getting it mm-hmm. um, and so I think that that's a good thing. It's a really positive thing if you're going outside of something you've never done before. So, yeah, that's I achieved both goals, so I was pretty happy. And next up for you in terms of big competitions, will you be shooting for the Olympics? Yeah, yeah. So that's a year and a half or just under two years away now. Um, so kind of everything from here on out is, um, is trying to progress towards qualifying for that. Uh, next year, though, we do have our World Championships in... Budapest, I think they are. Um, so that will be really fun. So that's the kind of next key thing that I'm uh, aiming for. So this summer season for me is quite important to try and um, increase my world ranking so that I can qualify for that. And through the summer season, like, are you competing every week or what does that look like? Um, it's kind of changed this season. I've kind of transitioned into more, trying to aim a little bit more for um, – you know, focus is more on the international season, which is over our winter in the European summer. Um, usually I would be competing uh, most most weeks. I will be competing for a about a five to six week window from late uh, January and there will be competitions every week, I think, in that period. One of them is two in a week and then I think most other weeks it's one every week. So it's quite a short period that I'll be competing for because then I'm knuckling down for um, – more training to lead into the European summer season. Mm -hmm. Cool. 
And being a nutritionist yourself, you'd be pretty clued up on how to eat as an athlete. Um, but you have been open about your story throughout your younger years with disordered eating. Um, if, if it's okay, do you want to tell us a little bit more about when that started and um, I guess your journey through that? Mm, yeah, of course. Um, like I said, yeah, yeah, I've been open about it in the past and obviously I think it's really important to um, tell if if you're in a right mental state to do so, to talk about these things so that other people realise that they're not alone and they are, um, you know, you can get through it and there are struggles along the way. So for me, I think when I look back, I had disordered eating patterns from quite a young age and I wasn't... Um, I think that was partly to do with some of the narratives that adults around me and how they were talking about food. Um, you know, it's not, I'm not putting blame on them or anything. It's definitely societal um, thing. Um, and so I would, you know, choose certain foods over others because I thought they were health foods and not um, eat enough and everything. But I think my relationship with food started getting a lot more complicated from around 15. I um, developed depression at that age and I... Um, would like often binge eat as a kind of a coping mechanism and then uh, when I was 17 I was over in Europe and I contracted like a um, a some form of bug and from then on um, I started to um, I was bulimic for quite a period of time so I would force myself to vomit after eating especially after if I'd been binging and you know my mental health deteriorated like quite a lot um, and I, I don't know what age I um, managed to kind of fully recover from bulimia. I would have been in my early 20s. Um, and then I've also gone through periods of times of kind of intentional restricting. Um, so a very complicated relationship with food earlier on, um, and it's something that unfortunately is quite common for a lot of people. Um, and I think in my early 20s, I... That I I didn't have, um, I guess, what I, I was never diagnosed with an eating disorder. Obviously, now being a health professional, I have a lot more understanding of what, like, I would have um, areas I would have felt fallen into in, um, in terms of eating disorders. Um, but yeah, throughout my early twenties, I definitely fell into, even though I wasn't, um, I wasn't currently, I didn't currently have an eating disorder. Um, had a lot of disorder eating pat patterns, and this kind of led to. Um, what I now believe is what I had um, was red S, so relatively energy deficiency in sport, and um, I definitely was not eating enough for what I was doing. I was constantly sick, like my immunity was just, I just picked up bugs like every, you know, two months or so, um, I could never fight anything off, I was constantly injured, I just thought I was injury prone, I'd always been injury prone my whole life, and so, you know, to me that just shows how I think I was probably underfueling from a young age um, for what I was doing. And uh, since I've been, the only times that I've ever like um, not been uh, injury prone um, have been when I've been fueling enough. So I've only ever, like in, the, in more recent times, I've only ever had um, acute injuries from, you know, last year I hurt myself and I was doing a box jump and then fell over um, off the bat. And it was, so it was an acute ankle injury. It wasn't an overuse injury. Um, yeah, so it's been a bit of a journey, um, but I think since as soon as I started doing my degree, um, I was 24 when that's, uh, yeah, 24, 25 when I started that, um, and just learning about how fuel can nourish you and the positive benefits of it, um, yeah, just made a huge, um, shift in my perspective of what I needed and also made me realize like, wow, like, I don't want to be like this. It's not, you know, I want to be um, empowered by food and, and enjoy food. So, yeah, that's mm -hmm. been a bit of a journey and there's definitely still moments where I, I struggle. Um, but um, as a whole, you know, just now I'm very on top of that and very aware of um, what my body needs. Did you talk to anyone when you were struggling or was it like, did you completely keep it secret when you were, you know, struggling with depression and bulimia? So um, I did receive support for depression. I, um, when I was 
17, I ended up um, just under some some care um, of some psychiatrists. And so I did um, receive support for that and was on antidepressants, which were at the time an absolute lifesaver. Um, and I never, to my memory, I never mentioned the bulimia to anyone. Um, I guess it's just there, there are a lot of feelings of guilt and shame that are associated with something like that. Um, and I only told my mum about it last year. So, um, or maybe it was earlier this year. No, it was last year. Yeah, so I only told, started to tell people. There were two people, maybe, no, three people in my life who knew about it before that. Um, Yeah, and so I did keep it a secret for a very long time and managed to overcome it by myself, but it's definitely not something that I would recommend. I would 100% recommend to be um, receiving support. And I've actually only recently just realised that, um, you know, even though I am in a really good mental state and have a really, like, as a whole, a really good relationship around food, I, I didn't receive any support for that. So I am actually like in the process at the moment of seeking out some external support to just go over some of the things that I think, um, you know, really um, that I, I didn't quite address at that time. Mm-hmm. So it's an ongoing journey, but um, yeah, it's, it's something that I think that kind of always sticks with you. It just becomes like that noise just becomes less and less and less and that little shoulder, a uh, voice on your shoulder just is almost non-existent. Um, so yeah, it's probably a regret of mine is not speaking out about it sooner because, you know, there is, especially with, um, eating disorders, there's damage that can be done to the body. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of part of me, like, what have I done, you know, for future Keely? Um, but yeah, no. So if anyone is struggling would a hundred percent recommend reaching out and it's, it's okay to, to admit that you're struggling. And, you know, these people um, are in their profession to help and support you as well. Mm. So you just, without support, one day got up and you're just like, I've had enough of this. I'm just going to, I'm just going to stop. Or did it take years to? Yeah, so it did take time. So I actually had a really close friend of mine when I was um, 18, through to 18, 19-ish, who really helped me see um my value as a person because you know for me it was all linked in with my confidence and my self-worth um a a lot of it was linked in with that and and then tied in with the depression and and other things and so over time it got better because my confidence in myself was slowly getting better um and my increased self-worth and and um understanding of me as a person so it it was probably at its height around like 17, 18. And then for the few years after that, um, just like started to get less and less frequent. And then, you know, it would get to the stage where I think there was um, um, one time a few years ago, probably like three years ago, where I had that thought of, oh, no, I want like, you know, I'd, I'd, eat, I'd probably overconsume something, um, which is totally fine. And then I'd have the, that thought of, oh, I don't want that to be in my body anymore. Like, and, um, but then, you know, then there's that, no, like, I really like don't want to do that. That's not something that aligns with me as a person. So it took a long time of, of challenging those thoughts. Um, but it, but ultimately at the end of the day, I, it, yeah, it didn't, um, align with who I wanted to be. Um, and so I think that was, yeah, it took a really long time to figure that out of, of who I am and, um, you know, it's still like everything's a constant journey, but like I'm just so much more secure and I know that I'm worthy as a person and that I'm, you know, worthy of having a really good relationship with my food and people around me and, and myself. So um, doing those little things to kind of nourish my body and mind um, so that I don't have any of those thoughts. But now I'm completely free from that. I can eat anything that I want. In terms of the bulimia, I can eat yeah, anything that I want and I never have any um, desire to, to um, purge or anything. Well, thank you so much for talking openly about that. It is very hard to talk about. and um, But even like people listening, like hearing that, they probably feel like a sense of relief to hearing a top athlete like yourself just talking about your own struggles. Mm, and ho- yeah, hopefully, because I think it is something that, yeah, really isn't talked about enough. And like I said earlier, the, the shame and the guilt that 
can happen from that. And even for me, you know, like I've always had bad teeth and um, that's just been my whole life and mm -hmm. we've, we've not really known why, but we've, we've talked to some dentists and tried to figure out a couple of things. But then the purging has not helped my teeth mm -hmm. at all, you know. Um, so even for me, I'm at the stage now that if I go to a dentist, I feel open about telling them about my history. Whereas like previously, that's just something that I just, you know, would bottle up and um, it's kind of like if I, you go to the doctor and you've had something that may affect future your current medical state, you know, I kind mm -hmm. of feel um, the same about discussing that with a dentist now and just letting them know so that they're aware of, you know, potentially the, the whys and, ha you know, things to be to prevent in the future. Um, mm -hmm. But it is, it's hard. It's really, really hard. And um, it kind of like even when I told my mum, you know, like I couldn't even tell her properly without feeling these, these, this guilt around it and the fact that also I'd hidden something from her for so long and something from my family and and then um, knowing that, you know, that's um, hard for my mum to hear as well, that she didn't know this about her child and, and for my parents and stuff. And so I think, um, you know, our parents and just those around us really want to support us and really want us to be in our best um, physical and mental state. And so... It, yeah, um, the earlier that you can talk about it or at least, you know, communicate it to someone or, or a health professional counsellor, anyone, um, the earlier that you can kind of try and figure it out and hopefully it's going to reduce the length of time that you feel those feelings or, um, yeah. And thinking about the bigger picture of relative energy deficiency in sport as well, it, it affects every system of the body and you've already talked about how it affected your immune system um, and, you know, injuries and all of that. But for you, did you also have, like, the menstrual irregularities and, like, were the injuries specifically bone stress injuries? Um, so I was actually on the pill from 15. So Very I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I actually don't know how that would have affected my cycle. Um, I only came off that two years ago um and yeah so yeah that's the short answer I have absolutely no idea I was really I had a lot of energy and fatigue problems like unexplained I even went to an endocrinologist and he um and it forewarning if you probably get an answer like this I would probably recommend uh, going and getting a second opinion but he basically just said to me um oh a lot of young women get really tired and fatigued all the time you'll grow out of it you know, so if you hear that, please go to someone else because that is not okay. <laughs> That's um, unexplained fatigue is definitely something that um, needs to be investigated further. Um, I've had one bony injury. Um, fortunately, I didn't have anything more. I just had a lot of like a, a lot of tendinopathies and um, bursa, uh, like um, yeah, just other like over like hamstring niggles or calf problems all the time. Everything else was or something was always sore. Um, I, yeah, when I was 24, um, I had, after a period of, um, intentional restricting, maybe I was 23, um, I was really, really light. So I'm 175 and I had been kind of eating enough food for the last, um, an adequate amount of food, probably like two or three weeks. And when I went to the doctor, I was 50. One kgs, I think. Um, so I was probably like late forties, and I um, started back training, and I then got an overuse injury. Uh, uh, sorry, a bony injury, um, which after four months of um, no, five months of uh, no loading, there was no no progress in the MRIs, and so that was something that I actually battled with for. Uh, it was only really last year that I started to not have to really worry about it. We had to adapt a lot of things in my training and in my um, run-up mm -hmm. so that I didn't put extra stress on that. Um, so, yeah, that lasted from 2018 through to last year of um, constant managing of this particular um, injury. So, um, or, yeah, bone um, problem. So I had uh, essentially broken um, a bone in my in my foot and it didn't fuse back together. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, so fortunately, I haven't had anything else besides that, um, and it was just that it was just a man we just had to manage that. There was nothing else I could do. Um, it wasn't going to get better while I'm jumping, and I had an MRI um, once I got back from the Com Games 
just on another little niggle in my in my foot and they took a look at this bone at the same time and it has started to fuse back together so lots of cool things <laughs> happening That's good um, but yeah so that was a yeah that was really cool to really cool to see because I mean it had been three years in between my from the last MRI to that one and so to see um that it was actually starting to get better was really cool do you think studying nutrition has really helped you around not only understanding like physiology and adequate nutrition but like mentally knowing what you need to do has that helped almost like just finish that final piece of recovery I think so um and obviously it's yeah that's just been for me what's helped with my journey is learning more about it and um I think being an athlete as well really helped in terms of you know, I've got something, a purpose that I needed to, um, that I needed to be um, nourishing my body for. Um, I don't know what that would have looked like if I wasn't um, a competitive athlete. I know that, yeah, at times it can be really hard to um, kind of figure out the why. So, you know, people, you need to, um, whoever's listening, you just, you know, figure out, figure out the why for you, you know, what resonates with you as to why, um, you know, you want, um, to live a really like um, healthy, content lifestyle. Um, yeah, so it's definitely something that helped me a lot. Um, and I think, and I think for a lot of people, you know, we we see sometimes see food as being a negative thing. You know, oh, you, if you eat this, you it's got X amount of calories and there's all you know sugar, fat, whatever in it. But actually, like you know, there's just so much more to food. And yes, it has some of those things in it. Um, it, help, it definitely has these things in it um, but those things can be so good for our body and um, just figuring out figuring that out I think for me was really empowering and being like oh I can have a really balanced diet and if I eat these foods it's okay you know if I have you know like at the moment I've got a block of chocolate that I'm just like working my way through and having um, I've got um, some a whole like some slices and stuff you know just enjoying these things and knowing that it's okay to have to have these foods um and they're all part of um having a really balanced diet and it was yeah really key for me um and also for me the more weight that I put on and strength that I built and muscle that I built the better I felt so it was for me I think alongside the education and the increased education around food my feel of like how I felt, you know, I had way more energy. I wasn't getting sick. I wasn't getting injured. I was being able to do all the things that I wanted to do. Like that was a huge thing. Um, so yeah, I think that's, um, yeah, been really cool. And seeing your progress must be motivating too. Like, you know, you're eating better than ever. You're training well, you're injury free and you've just had a PB at the Commonwealth games. Like mm. it's like everything's coming together. Yeah, definitely. And it's been, um, quite interesting. I think in the year leading into the Com Games, you know, everything was so. I had uh, I had just had the, this really strong purpose, and then post Com Games, because it's still a little while until the Olympics. Um, I kind of just kind of like was like, oh, I don't know where I, where I am and where I'm sitting, and it's just a weird um, a, a weird space to sometimes be in after a huge high. Um, like kind of the come down from that can be tricky to navigate, and I did for the first probably month or so when I got back into my training, I did let my um, food slip a little bit in terms of, you know, I've put so much emphasis on it for so long and in, in, a, in a really like positive way. Um, you know, I had some times where I didn't eat until midday or didn't eat until 10 o'clock or something. And it wasn't an, it wasn't an intentional thing that I, um, that I was doing. Um, however, I did then get a slight little quad injury like an overuse injury and then that was a big like oh okay no Kiwi like but like you you know it is so important to just constantly be um fueling adequately um and so like yeah like I said earlier I'm not perfect and I still have my moments but that was the first the first time where I think that I um in, in a number of years where I wasn't fueling enough for a, a short period of time. And my body was like, no, like mm. you cannot do that. So it was a good little remind, like timely reminder, I guess, because I don't want to have that going forward. I want to be very well. I want to be able to complete my training. Um, and I want to feel mentally well um, without restriction. So 
yeah, it was, um, yeah, just a little kick up the bum, I think, <laughs> that I needed, obviously, because, um, yeah, it's something that, um, yeah, it got to have a huge emphasis on on getting in enough fuel. Mm, yeah. No, incredible story, and thank you so much for sharing. You must look back now in your position and go, how on earth did I get through training and everything and, like, my late teens with how I felt and nutrition and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. And there were t- times that I couldn't train mm. because I wasn't well enough. Um, and also I think I didn't know what my body was capable of. Like, back then I, I didn't realise how much my body, how resilient and strong my body was mm. when it's fed. Um, because I just I couldn't complete half of what I can complete now. Is there anything else you wanted to finish on before we do the fast five questions? Oh yeah, about the fast five. Um, <laughs> no, just you know, if if you are struggling or um, for in, for any um, mental health problem, whether that's around food or anything else, like please do reach out and and talk to someone about it. Um, there's so many awesome support networks around. Um, especially for, for youth and under 25, you know, there's lots of free services. So do reach out because that's, um, you know, life is so great and can be um, so amazing and empowering. And um, yeah, so. Mm. We could always list some of them in the podcast description as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. Okay, so fast five to finish. You're, you're based in Christchurch at the moment, aren't you? Okay, we'll go with your favourite Christchurch restaurant or cafe. Ooh. Um, I would probably go with Shaka Bros. Would be um, one of my favourite things to get takeaway. <laughs> Sorry, it's not so much a restaurant, but a takeaway to go. You can eat in there as well. <laughs> yeah, nice. Your favourite song at the moment? Um, Lizzo, To Be Loved. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> Favourite holiday spot? Oh, Vietnam. It's definitely got a special place in my heart. I've been there a couple of times and, oh, yeah, would go back in a heartbeat. Your um, a sports accessory that you couldn't be without? Uh, probably I've got, like, a little suction, like a cupping suction that I use that, like, especially after hard sessions or leading into a competition it just like releases off the fashion for me so well and I feel amazing I don't think I could live without I've had it for years and it's it's amazing like a self-massage almost yeah yeah nice and lastly are you a cat or dog person I'm a huge dog person like massive dog because I love cat I love all animals but um yeah definitely more of a dog person Cool. Good stuff. Well, thanks so much, Kelly. It's been a pleasure to have you on, and I'm sure a lot of people will love hearing from you on the podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for having me.